read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3. First Peter, chapter 3. We read this passage in connection with the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 26, where we instructed with regard to the sacrament of holy baptism would call your attention especially to verses 20 and 21 in the passage we read, which points to the great flood as a type of baptism. We hear the word of God in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that Whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, 
which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Thus far we read from God's holy word. As I said, I would call your attention especially to verses 20 and 21 in regard to the Lord's Day before us, 20 and 21, where we read, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In harmony with this passage and all of Holy Scripture is the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 26. Lord's Day 26, found on page 14, on the top of page 15 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 26, how art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee? Thus, if Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the first epistle, of Peter, he warns the church of his time and with it 
the church throughout the ages, because they are pilgrims and strangers in the earth, they must expect suffering, persecution. When Peter wrote, the days were very dark from this viewpoint. It appeared that persecution and suffering at any moment would break forth severely upon the church of Christ. You must remember that persecution is always a threat to the church. The devil and the world of unbelief are dead set against the saints of God and the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, the first epistle of Peter is a letter of hope. As pilgrims and strangers in this world, Peter reminds us that our real home is above. We are exhorted never to be discouraged nor afraid, for no matter how greatly we are called to suffer in this world, we have the hope of heavenly glory. In verse 14 we read, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. But why is that hope so certain? How can we be so sure that our hope is not ungrounded, that there's not something that could deprive us of it, that in fact not even our own sins, of which we are always guilty here below, can keep us from that blessed reward? The reason why this hope is so sure and so steadfast is to be found in the fact that it's rooted in Christ. Christ suffered for sins. He suffered as the just one for the unjust that he might bring his people to God. That's verse 18 in the chapter we read. And on the cross of Calvary, Christ endured the hatred and persecution of a wicked world. And we who are called to suffer for his name's sake walk as it were in his footsteps. But the victory of Christ over his enemies is also our victory. And it's this amazing truth which assures us that our hope is absolutely certain. Christ is victorious. And the victory of Christ was a victory even announced in hell to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. For the victory of Noah was also a victory of the cross of Christ, even though the cross had not yet been planted on Calvary. And so that victory of our salvation was prefigured by the great flood. When Noah and his family were saved and the wicked world destroyed, that victory is assured through baptism by which we are taken into the blood of Christ through the working of his spirit. Even as the water of the flood carried Noah out of that sinful world while it destroyed that world, so also does baptism carry those who belong to Christ 
out of the sinful world into which they are born. The same blood carries us through the death of the cross of Christ, through the grave in the resurrection of Christ, and into all the glory of his kingdom. And we see that there are several points of resemblance between the church in the ark and the church of all ages. One is that both are well-doers, both are righteous before God, have favor with him. Another similarity is that both are few, an element which the apostle mentions in the passage we read. Few, that is, eight souls were saved. Another likeness is that both are evil spoken of, though they are righteous, really because they are righteous. Both are saved and justified while their enemies are condemned, so that by his Spirit Christ went and preached to them concerning the righteousness and the victory of himself and his saints, whom they once persecuted. But especially the apostle stresses the point of resemblance that both Noah and the people of God of all ages are saved by water. Noah, typically, and the people of God in reality, so that the flood is a beautiful type of the sacrament of holy baptism. After identifying the sacraments in Lord's Day 25, our catechism now proceeds to instruct us with regard to the sacrament of baptism. How does this sacrament direct our faith to the cross and our salvation? What does it mean to be washed in the blood and spirit of Christ? And how do we know that baptism is truly a sacrament? It's in this light that we consider this morning Lord's Day 26 under the theme, Our Salvation in Baptism. We notice, first of all, this amazing type. Secondly, a significant sacrament. And finally, a sure promise. As even you children know, the days before the flood were terrible days. At the time the flood came, there were only eight people left in the church of Jesus Christ, Noah and his family. This amazing fact was due to two things. On the one hand, in the days before the flood, there had been a terrible apostasy from the faith. The sons of God had seen the daughters of the land, had married them through that intermarriage between the people born in the line of the covenant and the people born in the line of wicked Cain who killed his brother, there was a great falling away from the faith. And yet that apostasy wasn't the only reason why the church had become so small. The wicked people of the world also persecuted the church, hunted the saints down to kill them. Severe persecution had broken forth upon that early church with the result that 
many of the people of God had been killed and had gone to their eternal reward through that road that was paved with the blood of the martyrs. The world had grown increasingly wicked. The earth was filled with violence. It had developed rapidly in all forms of iniquity that became especially evident in the 100 years preceding the flood while Noah was busy building the ark. God had instructed him to build it day after day, year after year. He labored faithfully to build it according to the plan given him of the Lord. But while he built, the wicked mocked. For Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed the promise of God, the coming of a Savior who would die for the sins of his people. He preached concerning the wrath of God against sin that would presently break forth in fury against a wicked world that persecuted his church and mocked his promises. But while he preached, that world rejected his preaching. It mocked and laughed at this faithful servant of God, boastfully speaking of the fact that a flood could never come, and that they were secure in their own wickedness, that the judgment of God could never reach them, that presently they would succeed in wiping out the church of Jesus Christ from the face of the earth. 1 Peter 3 informs us, however, that the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. We mustn't understand that as meaning that the Lord did not come in judgment immediately because he was willing to give that world a second chance to repent of their horrible crimes. But therefore, he postponed judgment, waiting to see what the world would do. No, rather the long-suffering of God was God's eager longing to deliver his people from their terrible suffering and persecution which they had to bear for his name's sake and his patience in delivering them until he could deliver them through the waters of the flood. God, to speak as a man, was eager to pour forth the vials of his wrath upon the wicked world eager to save his church, but he waited patiently to save them until the ark was finally ready and they could be saved from the wicked world through the waters of the flood. Then when the ark was ready and when that cup of iniquity of the wicked world was full, the flood came that the entire flood and the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark was a great miracle no one can deny. We read in the Genesis account of the flood that the windows of the heavens were opened. The fountains of the great deep were opened up. That flood was of such a magnitude that it covered the whole earth, even, even the highest mountains. 
born up by the ark, Noah and his family were miraculously saved by God in the ark, floating above the storm-tossed waters of the flood, safe and secure for a year and ten days. Yet we read so strikingly here in 1 Peter 3 that Noah and his family were not saved by the ark, but by the water. The salvation of which Peter speaks is not so much the salvation from the flood as it is the salvation of Noah and his family from that wicked world in which they once had lived. It was the water of the flood that destroyed that wicked world and all that was in it. It was the water of the flood that lifted up Noah and his family, the church, up out of the wicked world. It was this same water of the flood that carried Noah down again into a new creation that had been prepared by God for the inheritance of the eight souls that were saved. The water of the flood was the power of the salvation of that early church. We mustn't forget that that flood was also a picture of the final destruction of this world. We read of that in 2 Peter chapter 3 from verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, once again, the church on earth will become very small. Small through, on the one hand, terrible apostasy from the faith, and through a most horrible persecution of the saints, such as this world has never seen. Once again, through this persecution of the church, the church shall be all but destroyed from the earth, and the wicked will again fill the cup of iniquity. Once again shall God wait in his long suffering over his people for the last of the elect to be born while he bears the terrible crimes of the wicked and the awful suffering of his saints. But then God shall come in judgment upon the earth as he came before. Only this time he comes not with water but with fire to burn up the world and the inhabitants in his fury. A fire as with 
The water of the flood shall be the means of destroying the wicked and this present creation, of saving his church, of bringing his people into the glorious creation of the new heavens and the new earth, which he prepared for his saints. Now of all of this, baptism is a sign and a seal. Baptism is described here in 1 Peter 3 as not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The filth of the flesh in this passage refers evidently to the external dirt of what's found on our bodies. When we're baptized with water, it doesn't mean that the filth of our bodies is washed away. That would mean nothing. Nor does this mean that baptism is some external rite that results in a mere external cleansing in any sense of the word. Baptism has a much more profound and deeply spiritual meaning type of baptism was to be found in the flood. And the significance of baptism is therefore like the significance of the flood. It brings salvation. Question and answer 69 of our catechism bring that out so beautifully. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee. Thus, if Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. This in turn is true because baptism is a sign and seal of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The water of baptism is a sign of the blood of Jesus Christ which he shed upon the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time came into this world of sin and shame and he carried upon his own mighty shoulders the burden of the sin and guilt of his own elect people. He carried that load all the way to the cross into the darkness of hell where he suffered under the billows of God's wrath to pay for our sin and guilt. He went by his blood into death. But by the power of his own shed blood, he rose again from the dead and went on to glory. Always Christ did his Father's will, and God called him forth from the grave to take him into heaven. But to this Christ, we who belong to him are united. We are brought into the fellowship of his death and resurrection. We pass through his blood even as Noah passed 
through the waters of the flood. We were on the cross with Christ, for he was our representative head. We passed into the grave with him, but rose from the grave also by his power. All this is signified and sealed in baptism. Baptism marks the complete separation of the child of God from this world of sin. Just as before the flood Noah lived in a world of sin and evil, so also do we, before baptism, live in this same evil world. We are born in this world. We are a part of it. The sin of this world is in us. We are in the world. We're a part of this old creation of iniquity, of guilt, of death. On the one side of the flood for Noah or of the water of baptism and the cross of Christ for us, all is sinful and hopeless. But on the other side of the flood for Noah was the new creation which he inherited. It was a creation that typically was cleansed from sin that he had received from God in which to dwell in covenant fellowship with the Most High. So also on the other side of the water of baptism, that is, on the other side of the blood of Christ, is also a new world. This world is the new creation. When heaven and earth shall be one in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a world of heavenly joy and blessing. It is a world of freedom from guilt and sin. It's a world from which has been banished the horror of the curse and death. It's a world of God's covenant of life, everlasting in glory with Christ and with the angels and the saints made perfect. And we pass out of this old world into the new one through the blood of Christ. Even as Noah passed through the waters of the flood, it is as if we are carried on the tide of Christ's blood out of this world in which we live in sin and guilt and death to the shores of eternity where all our sin and guilt are gone forever and we are given the inheritance of the heavenly creation. Baptism is a sign and seal of this. Not only that someday it shall be accomplished, but that principally it is already true for us. For by this blood of Christ signified in baptism, we are indeed made pilgrims and strangers here below with our home above. By this same blood of Christ, we are safely guided through life and death into the safety of that heavenly home. In 1 Peter, for this reason, baptism is called the answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience toward God. The word conscience means basically to know with. 
Man, as a rational, moral creature, has a conscience. And by his conscience, he knows with God in the sense that he knows right and wrong. He knows the demands of God which God imposes upon his creatures. A man's conscience is that inward testimony of his life according to which he knows whether or not his life conforms to the demand of God's law. A bad conscience is, in like manner, a testimony that a man's life is set in opposition to God, while a good conscience is an inward testimony of the fact that a man's life conforms to the precepts of the Most High. A good conscience is to be found, therefore, in the man who has been delivered from sin and death, has been brought into the consciousness of God's favor. Such a good conscience is overwhelmed, on the one hand, with the consciousness of one's own personal sin and guilt, but is at the same time deeply and profoundly aware of the fact that one possesses the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. Peter speaks of the answer or quest of a good conscience toward God. The quest of a good conscience is the seeking of a good conscience or fellowship with the Most High. Answer 70 in our catechism points to the significance of this answer because it explains what it is to be washed by the blood and spirit of Christ. It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice on the cross, also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. So it's that power within a man that causes him to flee in faith to the cross, to cast himself upon Christ, to cling to that cross for all his righteousness. It is that earnest and restless seeking of the child of God to enter into God's fellowship, into God's world, into God's glorious creation of life and blessedness. It is that quest that is bound to have its answer. It's answered ultimately when God calls his child home out of this weary night of sin and death into the light of the eternal day. There comes ringing down the centuries of time the answer to that restless quest of God's people. Come home, my beloved child. Such, then, is the essential meaning of baptism. It's a washing, a flood, through which we must pass. The flood is the death of Christ. The water of baptism is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the one side of that, we are in our sin and misery and death, but having passed 
through that flood of baptism to the other side, our sin and misery and corruption are left behind. We appear righteous by faith, at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our form for the administration of baptism puts it so beautifully that we and our children are conceived and born in sin, that we are children of wrath, that we can never enter into the kingdom of God except we are born again. The washing of baptism, therefore, signifies the impurity of our souls and admonishes us to humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation, not in ourselves, but in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, therefore, as the Apostle Peter has it, signifies that asking of a good conscience after God. And that also, as we've noted, seeks its answer, receives its answer in baptism. The form speaks of that too, that baptism witnesseth and sealeth unto us the washing away of our sins, through Jesus Christ. It signifieth that God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us, that he adopts us for his children and heirs, that he will provide every good thing for us. It signifies that God the Son washes us in his blood from all our sins and incorporates us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection, that therefore we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. It signifies, too, that God will dwell in us by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he will sanctify us so that we are members of Christ, applying unto us all that we have in Christ, washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Besides, of course, through baptism, we are also admonished unto new obedience. So that we cleave to God Trust in him, love him with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength. It admonishes us to forsake the world, fight against our sinful nature, crucify it, that we walk a new and holy life. In this sense, we may say that baptism is the power of salvation was wrought by the Spirit. The sign, the seal of that power, it signifies that Jesus Christ went into death before us and the full punishment of our sin was upon him, him who was not only the Son of God in the flesh, but who was also in himself perfectly righteous and just. So that death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, of which baptism is a sign, 
is an atoning death. He died for us in our stead. By God's own appointment, he took our place. And therefore, he, his entering into our death, was substitutionary, vicarious, so that we may look upon his death as our death. By faith in him, we appropriate his death as our own. And therefore, we also appropriate his death as the punishment for our sins. By baptism, we are buried with him into his death as our representative head, according to God's own appointment, he takes us with him into his death. By faith, we go with him into that atoning, justifying death on the cross. Such is signified by baptism. In addition, according to the apostle, passage we read, baptism saves us by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We mustn't forget that baptism saves us not simply by the death of Christ, but by his resurrection. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, he would have been in the power of death still. And that would mean that his death would have failed to atone for our sins and therefore we would still be in the power of sin and death. We would not have been saved by the death of Christ. But thanks be to God, Christ was raised from the dead and that resurrection of Christ has a double meaning and a double testimony. It has the testimony of the Father who raised him from the dead that his death was indeed efficacious. Indeed, the atonement for all the sins of those whom the Father had given him, his elect. But in addition, it's a testimony of Christ himself, the testimony that he is the Son of God in the flesh and that he has power to rise from the dead, that he is the conqueror of death. He is able to give us everlasting life and glory. That's the beautiful meaning, essence of baptism. As the apostle puts it, so baptism saves us. For we do not only enter into death with him, but we with him also go through his death on the other side of the flood water of baptism, and we appear cleansed from sin, freed from all defilement and corruption of sin. We appear with the new life of our risen Lord. So baptism signifies that we are heirs of everlasting glory. It signifies that we are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Love it all of this, Christ has promised us. And that's very important. The catechism sets before us an entire question and answer with regard to the institution of baptism. 
especially today, that baptism is an institution of God through Christ, must be emphasized. There are many today that attach no real significance to baptism as a sacrament. To them, it's a mere formality, a sort of a custom, more of a family tradition, perhaps. A baby must be christened. At best, it merely means that the child is a member of some church, not just a heathen. Others deliberately reject baptism altogether, contemptuously speak of water baptism. According to them, the sacrament of baptism has no significance whatsoever. What is necessary is simply to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But Scripture and our confessions clearly show the institution of baptism as of divine appointment and ordination. That began already with John the Baptist. God himself sent John to baptize and to be baptized by him had the same meaning essentially as to be baptized into Jesus Christ. The baptism of John was sealed by Christ himself when he came to John to be baptized of him. And finally, this institution of baptism was sealed for the whole church of the new dispensation by the specific command of Christ of which answer 71 speaks. So it's very evident that baptism is a sacrament, an institution of God through Christ. It's to be observed by the whole church of the new dispensation. So, beloved, are, are you baptized into Christ? And then it's also your calling to live as those were baptized. Your children, young people, to live as those who are baptized and sanctified in Christ, to live as strangers and pilgrims here in this world. As Peter has pointed out, that may mean that you have to suffer for Christ's sake for a while. But we have the guarantee of victory. Our salvation is sure. We've been redeemed through the blood of the cross. When in the last day this world shall be destroyed by fire, we shall pass through that fire as we have passed through the essence of the water of baptism. We shall be heirs of the new world, heirs of the eternal inheritance that will be glorious forever. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for that flood of the blood of Christ shed upon the accursed tree. We thank Thee for the victory over death and the grave through His perfect work. We thank Thee for the visible sign and seal of that great salvation which we have in the sacrament of holy baptism. So may our faith be strengthened. May we be girded up with zeal. 
and serve thee as pilgrims and strangers here. May thy name receive the glory and praise. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.